who have endured such horrible pain and suffering and loss. There have been, since that fire's eruption, um, many stories of survivors fleeing the flames. And those stories have filtered through media outlets and social media. And, and I'm sure you, you've seen some of them. There are accounts of despair and stories of hope. Um, I read about one Paradise resident who picked up her neighbor, 97-year-old neighbor, Albert, and drove him to an evacuation center. Albert was sleeping and didn't hear about the fire until his neighbor woke him up. Another man, Alan Pierce, was a nurse at the ICU at Paradise Hospital, Feather River, Adventist, part of the Adventist Health System. And this is a story I heard about Alan. Alan and others at the hospital quickly evacuated the patients on Thursday morning as the campfire swept in. And then when that job was done, he and two friends uh, headed, jumped in his truck and headed for what they hoped would be safety. Unfortunately, they, along with hundreds of others, uh, were soon in gridlock traffic and stuck in the middle of the fire. Maybe you saw pictures like this. Flames licked the side of his truck and cars around his truck caught on fire. And he thought that his truck was next. He recorded a goodbye message to his family. He said this, just in case this doesn't get out, I want you to know I really tried to make it out. Right then, a bulldozer appeared and pushed some burning cars around him out of the way and there was some room to maneuver. But instead of going forward to safety, Alan turned around and drove his truck back into paradise and back to the hospital. And once there, he realized that residents had gathered there at the hospital site looking for help, not knowing that the hospital had been evacuated. And this is what passed through Alan's mind at this moment. <clears throat> we're terrible at burning to death, but we're amazing at taking care of people. And so that's what he decided to do. He and others, doctors, nurses, paramedics, police, they started a triage center right there in the parking lot of Feather River Hospital, and they went to work. They pulled gurneys and oxygen tanks and gear from the hospital and treated over two dozen people while the fire raged around them. And I call that courage. I call that boldness. Today, we have a chance to look at a story in the Bible, an amazing story of bravery recorded in the book of Acts. You know that we're in our fourth in our six-part series where we're stepping through each of the first six chapters of the book of Acts. And we began this series with um, the hope that the stories we hear, the instruction we get would help us to do church right at Village Church according to God's word. And so we've been stepping through that. And in Acts chapter 1, we saw how the church waited expectantly for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promised spirit. And that spirit came and the church followed the counsel 
And that's important for us to do, to be expectant and to follow God's counsel. Then chapter number two, we talked about the one essential for God's church. And that's quite apparent from Acts chapter two, and that is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, nothing else really matters in the church. The gift of the Spirit is the essential for God's church. And that gift was given, as you recall, we've talked about it now for a couple of weeks, that gift was given because Jesus Christ finished his work of salvation on earth. It was accomplished with his death on the cross, his resurrection. He ascended to heaven and was reinstated in his rightful place beside God the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords and ruler over all creation. And um, that is how and why the Holy Spirit was given. Because Christ ascended and was accepted and is ruling now and ministering for us, it says in the Bible, ministering for us in the heavenly sanctuary for us and for our salvation. And so the gift of the Spirit came to the church and the gift of the Spirit is still being given to the church. And I gave you a little something um, maybe you still have it, a little slip of paper. This, this one's been covered, and there are some of these that you can still pick up from the information desk if you like to carry one around. Just as a reminder, it's been helpful to me. I found over the last couple of weeks keeping this truth before me that I can't do church, I can't do ministry, I can't do life, I can't do family, I can't do neighborhood, I can't do anything without God's Spirit. God's strength and God's power. God's kindness, His goodness, His His Spirit working in me. That's what helps us do church and family and community and and justice and kindness for God's glory. So we learn that and the, the church is absolutely dependent. My life is dependent on God, on His Spirit for strength and power. Then Acts chapter 3, our takeaway was that God works today in every believer's life, the same way he worked in the life of that beggar, that lame beggar there at the the gate, beautiful. And that same spirit inhabits the life of every person that says yes to Jesus Christ. That same spirit that gave life to that lame beggar brings help and strength and wisdom and provision like you have never imagined beyond anything we can ask or think as he works in our lives. Well, that man, 40 years, a cripple, healed by Jesus Christ, the the apostle Peter said he was healed by the author of life who reigns even now in heaven for the forgiveness of our sins, the empowering of our life for godliness. And Jesus brings his grace and mercy into our lives today by the work of his overcoming power in his spirit, the miracle working power of God's spirit. So we talked about that, how we need to call on him, claim him, and be his exhibit like that lame beggar became, an exhibit of what God can do in a life of a person that's controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, the story of that that lame beggar 
<clears throat> was quite a story and made quite an impact on the people there in the temple that way, that day. And the story even spills over into chapter number four that we're going to look at today. Because the crowd that gathered around Peter and John and this cripple that was jumping and leaping, it says in God's word, and shouting for joy, created such a stir in the temple that the authorities were called. Someone, there was no such thing back then, but it was the ancient 911. They called 911. And the captain, it says, chapter number four and verse number one, the captain of the temple guard, along with some other high-ranking Jewish officials, responded. And the narrative of chapter two unfolds then between these two lowly followers of Jesus Christ against a most formidable opposition that was rallied against them. And It's an amazing story of boldness, of courage. And it's a story that God still repeats in the lives of willing believers today. A story of courage, a story of, of boldness. So this, this narrative that unfolds um, is instructive, I think, for us today. And this isn't unusual. This is not unique in the Bible. There are lots of stories about God's boldness. Just let your mind run through the pages of Scripture. How about Noah preaching for 120 years against that opposition that he faced and ridicule that, that came his way? How about um, Caleb and Joshua who defied the other majority and said we can go in we can take this land this is our god-given land or how about Gideon and his 300 soldiers that faced uh, an overwhelming opposition or how about another story of boldness and courage David against giant Goliath well that's sort of like this narrative that unfolds in Acts chapter 4 it's it's this kind of lopsided challenge between Peter and John and this crippled beggar that was made whole and this powerful opposition. And it's a story, I think, that is a sign for us, signifying that God's Spirit brings boldness to every willing heart today. God wants to do that for you and me, to bring boldness. So, So consider for a few moments as we start into this chapter, consider the challenge that Peter, John faced this day and all the followers of Jesus faced early on. We saw in the earlier chapter, yes, their number did swell in, after the Holy Spirit was poured out. The number went from 120 to 3,000 followers. But when you look at that number in comparison to the opposition, there was no comparison, actually. If, if we just compared it in, and used battle terms, it would be sort of like throwing a ragtag group of renegades together and letting them step up against the U.S. Marines. I mean, no contest there. That's sort of what the way it was. The disciples, these guys were just, well, number one, they were few in, in number. They they had no experience, they had no education, no training, and compared 
to their opposition, they were just a tiny band against a whole Jewish nation. And Luke, at the beginning of this chapter, describes the disparity that was happening there. Luke, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, the priest and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. Notice he begins to list off these people that are arrayed against the two disciples. Number one, it says the captain, the captain of the temple guard. This guy was the second most powerful leader in Jerusalem. First off was the high priest, that among the Jews anyway. Of course, the Roman governor and the Roman soldiers were more powerful. But among the Jews, this was number two, the Roman officer. And by the way, this was the Roman officer that was in charge of the soldiers that arrested Jesus. The same Roman soldier, the same Roman officer. The second most powerful person in Jerusalem. And this captain of the temple guard, it says, in verse number one, was joined by two others, um, part of this powerful opposition party, named as the priests and the Sadducees. Now, uh, verse number two, we see it. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. Now, why were they concerned about that? Well, the priests, of course, represented the Jewish majority. They were the established, ruling, powerful caste in Jerusalem. And they had been particularly opposed to Jesus during his life. And they were the ones who had maneuvered for Jesus' demise. And they had no sympathy whatsoever for his followers. None. And then there were the Sadducees. They were part, a small part of the Jewish society, but they were disproportionately powerful. They represented the upper crust of the social class, the social leaders, the business leaders, the the moneyed people, the aristocratic elite. These were the, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, early on in the Roman occupation of Palestine, had figured that, that if the Jews were going to survive in Jerusalem, in Palestine, that they would have to get along with the Romans. So the Sadducees, very early on, tied themselves closely with the Roman foreign authorities. And so they were the most influential people in Jerusalem among the Jews, Sadducees. It's also interesting to remember that the Sadducees were noteworthy because they believed that the teaching of resurrection, life after death, was unbiblical. You remember that exchange that Jesus had with them when he was on earth? And now they were incensed that not just Jesus, but now his followers were preaching resurrection and that Jesus himself was resurrected from the dead and all Jesus' followers would be resurrected at some time in the future. They, they had had enough of that. So all these, the Sadducees, priests, and temple captain, this was a formidable opposition to these two meek and unschool, unschooled men. But these weren't the only members of the opposition party. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 5 includes three more categories. It says the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law. You can see that in verse number 5. And the teachers of the law, just to explain a bit about who they were, they were probably 
the ones that are described as scribes in the Gospels, the teachers of the law, their task was to memorize, learn, and recite and copy the sacred scriptures, the scribes. Then the elders, the elders, well, they were the distinguished people, the older men in Jerusalem, the men of great influence, the elders. And then the rulers, well, these were probably people of uh, authority, positions of authority, either maybe as heads of government or departments or, or committees. But even with these, there's even more that Luke records as part of the opposition. Look at verse number 6. It says, Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priestly family. So here's the whole lot. The high priest, the family of the high priest, and some people that we don't even know, but they're all members of this family. And all of these, the high priest, the most powerful man in Jerusalem, and all the others arrayed, and these ones that were against Peter and John, were not only powerful, but they were the same ones who had arranged for and conspired to have Jesus crucified. So they were, they were mean and bad. And they couldn't have been more vehemently opposed now to Jesus' followers. So these leaders, these influential people, are against two men. Peter and John. And they were concerned because, well, these two men and others were taking over their teaching. There's authority that happens with teachers. And anyone that taught that wasn't among their group was a threat to their authority. That is, by the way, one of the reasons why Jesus was such a threat in his day. Jesus hadn't attended the rabbinic academies. He was not a doctor of the law. But you know, he taught with such power and authority that when guards were sent to arrest him, they were stopped cold in their tracks. It's recorded in John chapter 7, the story. And they said this when they came back to the people who had told them, them to go. No one ever spoke the way this man does. Isn't that amazing? They were sent there to arrest him, and they couldn't arrest him. Instead, they were convicted by this man's teaching. Convicted of their wrong and sensing their need to do right. And now here were these simple fishermen, like Jesus, untrained, unschooled, and they also were teaching with such authority that people were flocking to, to them. And not with not only their teaching, but it was being accompanied by miraculous signs. And so all these things add together to make this something that, that the leaders just wanted to get rid of. But the, the, the amazing thing about this, and even more disturbing for the Jewish leaders, was that the central point of everything that Peter and John and the disciples were saying, the message that they were giving to the people was that Jesus, the one that they had crucified, the one that they had plotted to kill, that this one had overcome death, that he had risen from the grave, that he had spent 40 convincing days among them, 
teaching them, encouraging them, and instructing them. And then he had ascended to heaven, and he was now in his place beside the Father, ruling and reigning and ministering in our behalf. And they didn't have anything to say against it. They couldn't produce the body to say, no, he's not ascended, he's not alive, we have the body. They couldn't. So, just affirming the resurrection peeved the Sadducees, but the message of Jesus, the message that he was alive, that he was ruling, that he was ministering and reigning in heaven, that changed everything. By the way, did you know that message of Jesus alive, ascended, ruling, reigning, and ministering still changes everything today? Changes everything in life. Just that one truth alone. They couldn't disprove. But the problem was, if it was true, then everything that Jesus said and claimed and did was also true. So these powerful men, these, this group of people who killed Jesus come and intimidate Peter and John. They have power and they will use it against them. And so this, the way the Bible describes it, they kind of pounce on Peter and John. They pounce on them. They, 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 we don't know, it's not told, Luke doesn't tell us whether they stopped their preaching, but they certainly surprised Peter and John and arrest them right there for who knows what. They, they had no need to arrest them. They could have come back the next day and invited them in the morning to come before their council. But they wanted to intimidate. They, want, they wanted to threaten. Their efforts and their motives were malicious. <clears throat> And there were more than intimidations. There were threats. Notice a little bit later the language that Luke gives tells us this. Luke, I mean Acts chapter 4 verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. Notice it says further threats. So in other words, they were threatening them all along. And now what kind of threats? It doesn't say what kind were given. We're not told specifically, but it's easy to imagine what might have been said. I'm sure they threatened them with assault. I'm sure they threatened to harm them, their friends, their family. They probably threatened to torture and even kill them. They had done that to Jesus. They would do it to them. But what's amazing in the story is that they throw them in jail, and Peter and John, the next morning, come out for questioning, and they were as courageous and unintimidated as they were the day before. And they're asked this question. Acts chapter 4, verse 7. By what power or what name do you do this? And boy, that was an invitation. So Peter just jumps right back into his preaching. He says, what power? What power brought this cripple healing and life and salvation? He says in Acts 4, 8 to 10. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame 
and are being asked how he was healed. He says, if you're asking that question, then let me tell you the answer. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He uses the whole name. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When I was in trouble, my mom always said, Jeffrey Dean Kenny. (laughs) And Peter says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Can you imagine Peter saying those words to the Supreme Court? Can you imagine the boldness as Peter stands there and solemnly states to this entire council representing all of Israel that Jesus Christ, the man that they had, the man that they had put to death, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, ruling and reigning and ministering there, and this Jesus had healed this man. By the way, the word that Peter uses there for healed the man is the same Greek word that's used a couple verses later for save. Notice in verse number 12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we must be saved. That word saved is the same Greek word as the word healed. Because... When Jesus saves us, he heals us. He heals us completely. It may not appear so now, but it is a complete healing. And it will be finished in heaven. You see, Jesus alone saved and healed the man. Jesus alone is the hope of salvation. And that hope is ultimate. That hope is complete. And by the way, He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said himself. It's not a matter of exclusivity. We're not being exclusive. To say those words, you may be charged as being exclusive, but you're not trying to be exclusive by saying it. It's not an issue of narrowness or intolerance or, as some people say, bigotry although you may be accused of those things when you express such a thought as this. It's not intolerance, is it, if the government decides to put a warning sign on tobacco products saying that this may hurt your health? Is that intolerance? It's not intolerance or bigotry, is it, for the government to regulate child safety with special car seats? That's not intolerance or or bigotry. It's good to protect health and promote safety. And it's not bigotry or intolerance or narrowness to say that salvation is found in no one else. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. It does sound narrow, doesn't it? It does. It does sound a bit intolerant. You could think of it that way. You could even say it's, it's exclusive. But that doesn't mean it's untrue or not important. Peter insists on this because there's no other path to salvation. Paul said it in a different way in 1 Timothy where he said, for there's no, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, 
Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. You see, there's no other mediator. There's no other. There's no other reconciler. There's no other advocate sufficient for the human dilemma. No one else but Jesus. Peter said those words because it's true. There's just no one else like Jesus. The eternal God became incarnate, took on human nature to bear the punishment for human sin, your sin and my sin, and then to offer his goodness, his righteousness to us. No one else could do that. No one else has done that. Now that doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus, we should ever disparage or belittle other religious people or their religion or the founders of their religion. Disciples of Jesus should never be disrespectful, right? But it's true though that nowhere else, no other faith, none other, is there one to whom belongs the title Savior of the world. He is Savior, your Savior and mine. And that's the thing that struck the courtroom about Peter's remark that day. He was so bold about it. He was a nothing. He was a nobody. He, by worldly standards, he had nothing at all to offer. And yet here he was, standing before the most distinguished crowd that could be assembled, and he spoke with such courage and confidence and boldness. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and had perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they recognized that they, say it with me, they had been with Jesus. Where'd they get that boldness? Where'd they get that strength and power? Where'd they get it? They had been with Jesus. That's where. That boldness certainly didn't come from sources that the world ascribes as the source of courage, like ability and intellect and training and wealth and accomplishments and resources and notoriety. No, none of that. It was the same source that David had. It was the same source that Noah had and Joshua and Caleb and Gideon and a, and a multitude more of people recorded in God's word. It was, as one Bible student put it, and I think he said it so well, it was a derivative virtue. I never heard it put that way, but I like that. That courage was a derivative virtue. Now, Dr. Ekins could explain that one to us pretty easy. But a derivative virtue would be that their virtue, that courage came from something, someone else. And that was the Holy Spirit. That was the power of Jesus Christ. David conquered Goliath. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go into the land. Peter and John, in the face of intimidation and threats to life and family, said to their powerful intimidators these words that have rung so 
loud and clear ever since. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Amen. That boldness, that heroic courage came from the assurance, came from one thing, the assurance that God was sovereign. He was Lord. Yes, Jesus may have been rejected by them, but as Peter said, he's become the chief cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, enthroned in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is today. You know, our world is an intimidating place, becoming increasingly secular. And as it does so, the principles of Christianity are becoming more and more suspect. I know that you, you sense that, you realize that. All of a sudden, devotion is described as dogmatism. All of a sudden, obedience is called legalism. All of a sudden, if we believed, we're labeled as ignorant. That's what the world is doing. But you know, from this story, I get the feeling that rather than praying that God would give us relief from the burdens of these misunderstandings and, and help us you know, to suffer through it, rather than praying for deliverance from our opposition, the opposition of these godless hearers, maybe we should better pray like the disciples did for Holy Spirit boldness to confront the darkness with God's light, to confront the oppression with God's freedom, to confront the skepticism with simple but profound biblical truth. That's what we need to do. 501 years ago, Martin Luther was sickened and angered by the blatant apostasy of his church. And you know the story. He posted 95 grievances on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. That act resulted in some pretty serious things. He was ordered to retract his statements. He refused. And because of that, he was declared a heretic and excommunicated and then summoned to appear to a church council, something similar to what Peter and John were summoned before, and asked to repudiate his grievances. But just like Peter and John, this great man of God declared, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot recant, I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. God help us. But may we take that stand today with Martin Luther. And another man comes to my mind, a namesake of Martin Luther, who dared to challenge unjust but deeply rooted social and economic vices. Martin Luther King. Did you know he was 26 years old when he joined that bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, 26 years old. 
Did you know that, that he was, his house was bombed, that he was nearly killed, stabbed to death? Did you know that, that he was repeatedly over and over again arrested? Did you know that he had courage to follow a dream of justice and equality? All because, and by the way, he wasn't perfect. Neither was Martin Luther, neither am I or you. But these all had courage because they knew someone who did have authority. They knew someone and they knew that his authority would bring them courage and boldness and strength. And it did. So my challenge to us today, that someone is still empowering God's church today with holy boldness. And I want to be a man of holy boldness. Do you want to be such a person as well? Holy boldness, not arrogance, not pride, just humility and holding on to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. To that end, would you give yourself as I give myself? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the hope you give us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of your spirit that comes to us with strength and power, just like it did back in the days of of Peter and John. Know the miracles that accompanied their ministry don't happen all that often anymore, but your spirit is still, still here to empower, to strengthen, and to help us be your, your agents of salvation. Understand in a world that's going a different direction. So, Lord, we're asking you, may we be filled with your spirit and have holy boldness for your glory and honor until you come back is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.